All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Do you want to talk about what happened last night? Do you, do you think it's appropriate? I mean, should we... What, what part? We were laying in bed. It was dark. Right. The lights were off. You'd just put away your Kindle for the night, mm-hmm. and you were all snuggled in. And I was still scrolling through on my phone, and I found a recipe that looked really interesting. And of course, as I do, I wanted to tell you about it uh, because I don't acknowledge when you are cuddled in and ready for bed, apparently. <laughs> I just talk to you even though the signs are clear that I should not. So I was telling you about this recipe for a wrap that looked really good. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember now. I was thinking of something else, but yes, go ahead. Some like crunchy vegetable wrap mm-hmm. thing. Right. Yeah. And I said, I would like to make this wrap. Yep. And then what happened? I said, maybe you could enter it in a competition and have a rap battle. Yeah. The funniest part of that. I know that's hilarious, but <laughs> um, no, after I said that the lights were out, we were ready to go to sleep. I see in the dark cat, just quietly get up, pull the suitcase out, put it on top of the bed and start packing it, closed it up, walked out and closed the door. And then she stayed out in the other part of the house for 20 minutes because when she does comedy, she commits and I had to come back out and convince you to come back in again. Please don't leave me. I don't know if I can stay now. Please. Okay. And then you made me unpack your suitcase, which I guess was fair. It was your fault. (laughs) It was your fault that it was packed. So what you got for me? I'm going to tell you today. That was a very loud inhale. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. Maybe you're just excited. (gasps) Ready? You're you're attempting to hyperventilate. Well, it is very warm in here, Mm. and so uh, I think probably everything will sound a little more labored because I am hot, like, but not in a good way. Oh, in a good way, like smelly. Okay, like smelly hot. Okay, not good. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, here yeah. we go. Okay, good. Martin Van Burchell was born in 1735 near Red Lion Square in London. He was the son of a tapestry maker. Butchell's Tapestries. That's right. Uh, he trained as a surgeon under John Hunter and developed an interest in dentistry, which is rumored to be a result of having injured one of his own teeth. That so, would, yeah, that would increase my desire to learn how to uninjure my teeth. <laughs> Especially in 1735. Dental implements were pretty similar to um, farming tools. <laughs> Van Burchell, let's call him Martin. I'd rather call him Birch, if that's okay with that's you. That's fine. Okay. That's fine. So Birchy Pants set up a successful business. Birchy Pants McGee. As a dentist and a maker of trusses at Mount Street in Mayfair, uh, which is a very high-end area. And uh, he had a great skill of treating cases of ruptures and also anal fistulas. Really? So, you know, he just both ends. It's kind of a, a diverse <laughs> business plan. Yeah. If it's uh, where things go in or where things come out of, he's got you he's covered. Into it. Yeah, right. <laughs> According to Royal College of Surgeons of England, his fees were high two guineas for a consultation, while a full set of false teeth cost 80 guineas. I don't know what that means as far as like. Uh, current dollars. Mm. But I will say that according to this information, one of his quirks was that he refused to make house calls. And his advertised motto was, I go to none. <laughs> you know, that's really not the Amazon model, but um, it's, it's an interesting marketing strategy. And he once refused an astonishing offer of 1,000 guineas to visit a patient at home. He was not fucking around. I go to none. He focused on real or artificial teeth. He was rumored to be very good at fixing your mouth issues without a lot of pain. Now, if you went to him, could you combine his services? You know, could could he uh, fix your dentures and your anal fissure? I, I would assume and, and so. If so, does he use the same tools? And if he does, does he rinse them off? Interesting that you would go in that direction because I went immediately to, is it on one invoice or does he <laughs> yeah. put them on two different invoices? Itemize it, yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. So anyway, he was very popular, highly sought after. And was known for his whimsical newspaper advertisements. It's London, so I'm, I can say that. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Advertisements. Oh, okay. All right. Advertisements. One of those advertisements being, I go to none. Right. He also had a, an additional sideline business selling various elastic devices that he designed. <laughs> <laughs> which were used for gentlemen's underwear, corsets, and garters. In fact, one of his adverts implied that the garters were so sought after that fakes were made to replicate Birch's work. Wow, he was a renaissance man. Oh, yeah. Some of his innovations were more practical. He invented cork-lined stirrups to keep his boots from sliding off <laughs> and designed an unusual bridle, which included a blind that he could let down over his horse's eyes at will. So from a seated position, he could shump, put the blinds down or oh. hunk, lift them up. Interesting. So if something freaky was going on and he didn't want his horse to get spooked, shump. Blinds down, which is actually really clever. This guy's a genius. Yeah. He was quite invested in his pony, and we will get to that. Uh-oh. 
No reason for uh-oh. I'm just wondering, did he make garters for his horse, too, and no. dress him up? No, why would you go little, in that direction? That horse is garters. Weird. Kind of equine underwear. It's very concerning that you immediately go to, he dresses his horse up in sassy pants regalia. Like, that's not where everybody's mind went. I'm just saying. He was just as well known for his... Mm, odd behavior as he was for his skill with teeth, elastics, and anuses. His dress was unconventional. His beard was very long, eight inches, according to one advertisement. He also carried a large bone attached to his wrist for protection. (laughs) Wow. He carried his defensive bone with him. His gray pony was often painted with purple polka dots, sometimes black stripes, Hmm. Uh, and he would tootle about Hyde Park on his purple polka-dotted pony. With the elastic garters. There's no garters! Killjoy. Among his other eccentricities were his refusal to call his children by their names. <laughs> he would only whistle for them. <laughs> and and let me guess, he had unique whistles for each one? You know, I don't know. Uh, maybe they just all had to show up and he was like, no, not you. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Hmm. I would think that a guy that is uh, so inventive would be far more organized than just a general right. child whistle call. Well, I have a JG whistle. That's true, you for do. For when we're in department stores and such, yeah. and I can't find you. That's right. It's... And then sometimes you'll whistle back... <laughs> Those of you who know why, know why. You're my is it you. <laughs> anyway, he also only allowed his wives to dress in either black or white, not both. Hmm. His first wife chose black. His second wife chose to wear white. Well, maybe that was the same type of thing as like the individual child whistle. Um, he could just tell his wives apart. He didn't want to get them confused. Was he married to them at the same time? No. Okay. Which reminds me of a moment of sheer terror and embarrassment that happened to me. Oh, uh, share it. Well, years ago, when I was with another man, I know we don't talk about this often, Fuck as him. it brings the. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. What? <laughs> I accidentally bought him the favorite candy of my previous boyfriend. <laughs> and I was all like, I got you these at the store. And he was like, okay. And I was like, because I know. Oh. <gasps> Okay. I thought you might like to try them. <laughs> it was a very specific candy, too. It wasn't like, you know, Kit Kats or something yeah. where it was just like whatever. Uh, it was a very like specific. Like Rolos or something like that. Peach rings. <laughs> Peach rings? Peach rings. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So Here, you I can love imagine. You so much. I, I got you these circus peanuts. <laughs> he liked them. That's not up to me. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Where was I? According to Fun London Tours, on January 14, 1775, Martin's wife died. His first wife. The, uh, the, the black-dressed one? The black-dressed one. She was 36. She was sometimes referred to as Mary and other times in Maria in written sources. And it might be that Maria was anglicized to Mary, but it's really not known Again, it was the mid-1700s, and women weren't important enough to have their names noted. Mm-hmm. Well, unless it was followed by the line, wife of. 
Well, in all of Birchie's own records, he only refers to them as my wife. Never. Never. By anything huh. more specific. Wow. So Birchie asked one of his former tutors and an anatomist, William Cruikshank, to preserve the body. Wait, Cruikshank? I, I just whipped right through that because I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, so I was hoping you wouldn't notice and question it. No. How am I not going to question Cruikshank? C-R-U-I-K-S-H-A-N-K. Cruikshank. I'm not questioning your, your pronunciation. I'm, I'm just saying Cruikshank. Oh, yeah. Is that how you would pronounce it, though? It is now. <laughs> All right, so. So Birchie Pants and Cruikshank. And one of his other former tutors named Hunter. This is according to the Museum of London. It's not recorded why Martin wanted to preserve the body of his wife, if he couldn't bear to be without her, or if there was a clause in their marriage settlement, which gave him more control over property while she was, quote, above ground. Um, so. Oh, my. A, a reassuring epitaph, though, in newspapers at the time did suggest the more romantic slash less horrible version of those two options. Regardless, about 12 hours after her death, they were digging in, and um, her body started the process of embalming. What? Yeah. They started her preservation by way of filling her with powdered nitrate. They put in glass eyeballs okay, for she her. Was, she was dead. She, yeah. Okay. And, and for how long? 12 hours. 12 hours. Okay. I was confused by the digging in part. Well, they were digging into her dead body. I see. Okay. They went right from, oh, she she passed away, to let's pop those glass eyes in. <laughs> Isn't that just like a man? No warm up or nothing. <laughs> so her corpse was then put into a plaster of Paris with a retractable glass lid so that she, dressed in her fine gown, could be on display to his friends and visitors in the house, which also housed his practice. Birchie decided he was going to put in an ad in the paper, which read, Van Birchel, not willing to be unpleasantly circumstanced and wishing to convince some good minds that they've been misinformed, acquaints the curious, no stranger can see his embalmed wife, unless, by a friend personally, introduced to himself any day between nine and one Sundays accepted. Okay, but he will go to no one. He will go to no one, but pretty much anyone, as long as they've been introduced to him, mm -hmm. can see his sure, right. preserved, quote unquote, wife. So he was pretty much prospecting for, for clients. This was an elaborate advertising scheme to get people in his door. Well, possibly. The thing is, he didn't do this work. He wasn't someone who embalmed people. Yeah, but his... while they're there, let me let me check your incisors. You know, he could just once they're in the door. Incisor? I don't even know her. <coughs> no. All right. Now, the the boys did their very best, but unfortunately, um the lips and cheeks were losing their color, so they used oil of turpentine and camphorated spirit of wine on the corpse to create kind of a blushed look. Mm -hmm. um, but still, she was described as a repulsive-looking object, though rougie. Well, at least they waited until she was dead before they called her that. Great point, sweetheart. 
I'm going to buy you some candy. Now, Martin died on October 30th, 1814, at the age of 80. In the year after his death, his first wife's remains were offered to the Board of Curators of the Royal College of Surgeons by Martin's son. Now, alternate reports state that she was actually moved uh, earlier than that due to objections from the white-dressed wife. Yeah. Wait, I didn't even think about that. So he, he gets married again. I wonder if he told her in advance, sweetie, listen, um, or whatever your name is. Listen, uh, when you come to the house, uh, there's a few things that you probably aren't expecting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a rather large porn collection. I have an extensive drawer full of uh, drug paraphernalia. And there's uh, my my dead wife's in the the, uh, living room. Oh, I thought you were going to say something about like, uh, you're going to see some very intimidating dentistry tools, lots of close-up sketches of buttholes, Mm -hmm. and the rotting corpse of my, my first wife. Well, either way works. Well, at least the second version, my version, would be accurate. We don't know about his porn. Maybe it was a very small collection that he obsessed over. Who knows? Maybe it was just a picture of his horse and elastic garters. Would you stop? He wasn't like that. You don't know. You weren't there. Moving right along. Mary's embalming did not age well. A visitor in 1873, I'm dyslexic. A visitor in 1857 recorded her remains as shrunken and hideous but with a remarkably fine set of teeth. (laughs) Well, there you go. See, there's your advertising That's right. Yeah. It is probable that she would have stayed there had not there been a fire which caused most of the museum's collection to be destroyed in 1941. What you can still see is a greeting card. There are over 1,700 Valentine's cards in the Museum of London's collection. This particular card dates to around 1825. Within an embossed border of cream lace, the illustration has a caption handwritten in blue ink. My late dear wife preserved in a glass case. She was such a darling pet that I had her stuffed. Will you be my second? No. No. The central image depicts a bell jar containing a woman with flushed cheeks, presumably the preserved body of wife number one. Uh, Most of the cards at the Museum of London were donated by Jonathan King, a person who ran a card-making studio, but it's unclear if he was the designer of this particular card meant to reflect upon uh, this glorious moment in history. Happy Valentine's Day. It's the part of the podcast that bakes for 15 minutes at 400 degrees and smells vaguely of venison and leftover cabbage. This is That Thing in the Middle. Today's Thing in the Middle, movie taglines that should not be. And I think that we should do this in the style of like, I'll tell the the movie title and then you do the tagline or vice versa oh like a movie trailer okay all right i've got just the music for that too okay go ahead okay go ahead the day of the dolphin unwittingly he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the united states who i I would have loved to have been at that pitch session please watch that movie (laughs) yes i am immediately 100 percent in can we switch it around now so that you say the title and i do the 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 voice guy thing okay number four suspiria the only thing more terrifying than the last 12 minutes of this film 
are the final 92. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, Silent Rage. Science created him. Now Chuck Norris must destroy him. (laughs) Number two, The Lift. Take the stairs. Take the stairs. For God's sake, take the stairs. That's the actual tagline of this film. (laughs) Unreal. And number one, the vanilla ice vehicle, cool (laughs) as ice. Okay, I see this more as like a, you know, mid-90s comedy kind of approach. So cue me again. Okay. And number one, the vanilla ice vehicle, cool as ice. When a girl has a heart of stone, there's only one way to melt it. Just add ice. Wow. Thanks. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Box of Audit. Hang on, we just got a text. Not sure we made our... Okay, that can wait. This is The Box of Oddities. Tim sent us an email at curator at theboxofoddities.com. He said a few episodes ago, we mentioned feeling weird about walking out of a store past the checkout without buying anything. That was actually a long time ago. He said, it made me laugh because I lived for three years in Moscow, Russia. So cool. And I had an embarrassing moment my first few weeks there. When I first moved, I didn't know the language other than to say yes, no, excuse me, thank you, and I'm sorry. After my language lessons, I would explore the area around where I lived to listen to others using the language and see what shops there were near me. I passed a really nice grocery store, so I went to look around. When I went to leave the store, the only way out was through one of those checkout lines. All the lines were full, and there were metal rails between the two lines. Mm. I finally had the idea I'd walk past the line and turn belly forward against the metal rail and squeeze past the person in the checkout line. I chose the line where there was this little old lady, Babushka, checking out. When I got up to her, I bellied up to the rail and scooted past her, not being very, let's say, buttock aware. I ended up grinding my buttocks against this old Russian lady as I tried to get past. Embarrassed, I hurried past, and once on the other side of her, she said something in a very harsh tone. I was flustered and my language skills were pretty low. So I went to say I'm sorry, but mistakenly said thank you and rushed out the door. (laughs) I laughed to think about how I accidentally became the American butt-rubbing pervert of South Moscow. Well done, Tim. At least you said thank you. Yes. That's that's, important. That's true. It's manners. What, what, what you got? What you got for me? Creepy, scary, disgusting. Why don't you tell it to me? Did somebody send that to you? Yes, David sent that to me. Was he driving when he made that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. David. Thank you, David. Do you remember uh, a long time ago, we did an episode on Victorian death photos? I do. And how the families of the deceased would often pose with the corpse of a dead loved one. Sometimes the photographer would even paint eyes 
on the dead person's eyelid so that they would look like they were still alive. Sure. That was mostly because of the invention of the daguerreotype in 1839, which was an early form of photography. It gave rise to most post-mortem photographs. You can still see them if you Google that stuff. Adults were posed in a uh, setting that that reflected their profession. So let's say you, you were a dentist and like a butt fissure guy. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, your your death pose would reflect your your vocation of choice. So I don't how know. would you reflect both of those things? How far would you be bent over? That's my question, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> bent over and then have some dental tools nearby. <laughs> I don't know if technology during Victorian times allowed for that type of a depiction. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Children would often be posed with a family member, sometime with a toy. Sure. Or sitting with a sibling. And since photography was so expensive, oftentimes that was the only photo that they had of the of the loved one. Right. And certainly by today's standards, it seems kind of weird, but uh, the Victorian era was full of bizarre funeral and mourning practices. So put on your oppressive black mourning veil and hang that death crepe on your door because we're going back to the Victorian times and we're going to visit some of the more unusual rituals and the uh, etiquette surrounding death and dying. I love it. So the black crepe on the doorknob, you've seen old Victorian pictures and uh, morning photos and there's black crepe draped around. And the reason that they would put it on the doorknob was to be a, a jarring reminder that life had been extinguished. Right. So don't put your hand on this doorknob and walk into this building with a chuckle. No chuckle. No chuckle zone. No chuckle zone. I want that embroidered on like a beautiful hoop that says no chuckle zone. Or maybe a a morning crepe. Or a morning crepe. Sure. 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 Oh, I love a crepe. Oftentimes what they would do too is, is when somebody would die in the family, of course, friends and family would come by to pay their respects, and they didn't want people opening and closing and, and banging the door all the time because it was supposed to be quiet. Mm. You don't want to bother the dead guy. Sure. You know? So they would often leave the door ajar after a death. When is a door not a door? It's a jar. <laughs> yep. So they'd leave it a yeah, jar. Okay. And the crepe was used to remind people that were coming in that weren't physically opening the door, just kind of coming in to be quiet. That's what that crate meant. Somebody dead here, come on in, but uh, be quiet. But it wasn't always a black crepe. They used white crepe if the person died was young, unmarried, or signifying some sort of uh, Purity loss, kind of, loss of innocence. Yes. Got it. And of course, people wore dark colors. It uh, graduated from black to muted colors over time. And that was to reflect a mourning period for a loved one. And that could last up to five years for widows. They were required by custom in Victorian times that if you were widowed, you must be in mourning clothing for two years. Otherwise, you're a floozy. You had That's to, fair. You had to wear the black stuff. And, and not only that, but you had to, whenever in public, appear to be grief stricken. Right. At all times. It's important. For two years. Yeah. Up to five. But two is is satisfactory. But if you didn't intend or really have any investment in your marriage in the first place, go ahead and give your jewelry to the war effort. That guy with the mustache will get it back for you anyway. Speaking of jewelry, you could only wear black jewels. Oh, really? You could wear jewelry. They had morning jewelry. Oh. But it had to be black. Oftentimes, they made special inexpensive morning jewelry out of coal. Oh. 
Oh, well, that's interesting. So it's kind of like, you know, after your morning period, then you could build a small fire. Absolutely. With your, yeah, yeah, with yeah. your jewelry. A widow could opt to wear black for the rest of her life. And many did. There were also different phases of mourning. The bereaved could begin uh, to introduce some color back into the wardrobe. That was called half mourning. So like after two years, you could go to like a, a navy blue? Yeah. Or you could wear black and then have a, a, a slightly different color uh, bonnet, for example. Handkerchiefs, umbrellas, accessories. So that way you know when it's appropriate to start hitting on this woman again. Like, okay. That's right. She's got a lime green hanky. Right. Open it's for go business. Time. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Now, this was kind of, this was pretty much popularized by Queen Victoria. She's the one that made white wedding dresses popular. Right. And then she defined grief with the uh, perpetual mourning dress. She wore black and stark colors after Prince Albert's passing until her own passing 40 years later. Mm. And the entire Victorian society was expected to uh, follow suit. And uh, that made the bereaved widow the centerpiece of her husband's passing. Kind of like a morbid bride. Yeah. I also think that it's, I mean... That can go in a lot of directions. Mm. One, yes, you are in mourning. You wake up every day and you feel that loss. But it could also be very much a, look at me, I'm in mourning moment. I know one person who is incredibly narcissistic Mm -hmm. and would play that the rest of her life. For sure. The rest of her life. Oh, absolutely. It would be like, that's how she would introduce herself. Hi. Yes, I'm the one whose husband died. Gross. (laughs) Children were expected to grieve a deceased parent, but just for one year. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that seems reasonable. With the perspective of age, I mean, that makes perfect sense. A child was expected to grieve a lost parent for nine months of deep mourning and then three months of half mourning. Which means that, you know, after nine months, you could start wearing some color and then gradually transition back into everyday colorful Victorian wardrobe. So if you are in deep mourning for a sibling, how is a prospective suitor supposed to know who you're mourning? That's like, true. If, yeah. you're, if you're just mourning a sibling, it's okay to try to hit it, right? I think that they're speaking in terms of young children oh okay so when you're an adult you wouldn't mourn your adult siblings death that would fall under the adult mourning just regular mourning right exactly now if several or all the members of a single household died oh anyone that entered the home was required to wear a black ribbon including dogs and chickens the ribbon was believed to prevent death from being spread outside the house. So if you went into a house where everybody had died, uh-huh. let's say an entire family died in a tragic carriage accident. Sure. Um, if you went to pay respect to the family's mm-hmm. ho- at the family's house, their home, which is where they laid the bodies out traditionally, you would wear a black ribbon. And the black ribbon was meant to uh, absorb the death so that when you walked back outside... You would not die. And it was the same with dogs and um, and chickens. Did a lot of people let the chickens inside their home to mourn? It's a Victorian error. It was the chicken mourning law. I don't know. That seems foul to me. If the dead chicken came back and haunted you, it'd be a poultry geist. Because. Sorry, we didn't mean to ruffle any feathers. Please continue. 
More well-to-do homes would even have uh, ceremonies for their uh, de uh, deceased animals, particularly dogs. Most families conducted dog funerals in order to honor their lost canine friends, and, and they wore mourning garb for their dead animals. How long did you mourn your dead animal? They, I, I don't have any rules on that. Okay. I think that's left to the individual mourner. I think that's really nice. As a person was dying during that period, their family and loved ones would sit by them until they passed. And again, at this point in time, all the death was done in the home, mm -hmm. unless it was an unforeseen accident. Right. It was customary for friends who were not members of the family to then sit beside the deceased. That would spare the immediate family of that added grief. And of course, that would be the wake sometimes a day or two, just to make sure that they didn't get up, start walking around again. Well, that's really nice that people would offer to do that so you didn't have to. I mean, I have I have been the person sitting with someone when they passed. And if I had to then continue to hang out with them mm. for a day or two, just to make sure they didn't be not dead anymore, that would have been a real fucking bummer. Yeah, right. Mirrors were covered to prevent those from passing from being trapped right. in this dimension. Yes. It was a widely held belief that mirrors could trap the deceased person. Now, I wonder if that has something to do with why vampires can't see themselves in mirrors. Ooh. Because their spirit hasn't been trapped. Right. Or is trapped already or... Trapped where, though? Yeah. Mm. Anyway, they would go around and cover all the mirrors with black cloth. Some argued that this helped prevent vanity among the bereaved living in the house. When a loved one dies, you don't want to be combing your hair and looking all good and stuff. I don't know. I've seen some really good funeral selfies lately. <laughs> My God. <laughs> that is true. That's the current version of Victorian death photos is selfies at funerals. Also, any family photos or paintings would be turned upside down or turned to face the wall if there was glass. Because still then you could see your reflection? Right, or they because would flip that the... around. Oh, okay. And, and I guess like photos and paintings of the individual or, or family member would, uh, would be turned upside down to prevent them from being trapped. I don't know. In I don't, their image? Yeah, I guess. Interesting. I, I don't okay. know. Okay, all right. I'm not questioning it. Mourners then made jewelry often out of a loved one's hair mm -hmm. and artwork. We saw a lot of that at the Mütter Museum. There's a whole wing at the Mütter Museum of Victorian death hair art. I thought that was just an exhibit that they were having. It Maybe wasn't it was. a permanent thing. I think you're right. It but was. Um, it was that was probably the thing that kind of grossed me out the most. More than the the corpse wax. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, though, because oh, it's I, hair. of course, uh, I learned about it. It didn't come I out of your sink. Read about it. But then you see it and it's all like tangled within itself and <laughs> making shapes. And I, I didn't mm, like it. Yeah. I didn't like it. Another important thing to do right after somebody passed was stop the clock at the time of death. Oh, okay. Yeah. In my family, there was, I don't know where it is now, but there was a clock that was passed down from great, 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 how many ever great grandparents uh, from the mid-1800s that had been stopped at 2.21 a.m. and they never restarted it. They just left and it was passed down through generations just at 2.21 and nobody could remember who it was that, <laughs> that oh, died. <no. laughs> but we still had the clock. Oh, I don't know. 
Well, that's something. Most of the time, though, after the uh, deceased was laid to rest in the ground, the clock could be uncovered and restarted again, but uh, it wasn't always. Apparently not. Now, like I mentioned before, most funerals took place in the home during these days, usually in the front room or the parlor. Right. And it wasn't until about, well, slightly after the Civil War that the business of of embalming became more widespread. And then that tied in with a funeral home or a funeral parlor. parlor. That's why we call it a funeral parlor. But when they would take the body out of the house to take it to the graveyard, Mm -hmm. They would take the body out head first to prevent it from calling out to others to follow along into the grave. Um, but sound doesn't work that way. Yeah, well, it was Victorian times. So. All right. It was believed that if they carried the body out head first, the deceased could see where the house was and return to haunt it. But it seems to me that you could see it either way. But that's what they believed. Additionally, the spirit that was not yet laid to rest would be able to beckon to others and lure them to the grave, to their own demise. You could just say no thanks. Yeah, I suppose. I'm all set. Thanks, bub. Then they'd load you into one of those old Victorian carriage-drawn hearses, Mm. which you see pictures of. Beautiful. But if you were a child, you had a smaller hearse, and it was white. Again, it would tie into that whole innocence thing with the white crepe. Now, let's say you die and it's a small family. Or let's say you die and people don't like you. Okay. You could always hire professional mourners. This Okay. (laughs) Important Um, that you have mourners. It was kind of a status thing. If you were well-to-do, you were expected to have a certain amount of mourners. And the more mourners that you had at your funeral, the more prestige it was assumed that you... You had professional mourners, or they called them mutes, were hired to follow behind the coffin or to at least hang out and look especially forlorn. Oh, my. Yeah. Were they called mutes because they weren't to say things about the person who died? Just be there and be... Just be greedy. Yeah. Just be sad. Yeah. Fair enough. It also made everything seem very, very solemn, more so than it would normally be, especially if, you know, it was lightly attended. Despite all of the emphasis on grief in the Victorian culture, it was considered unseemly to publicly cry, particularly loudly at services. So they would hire people to just quietly trudge along behind them and look sad. Right. Be sad, but not so sad that it like impedes upon other people. You don't want to be rude. You don't want to make them uncomfortable. Just be sad and noticeably sad, (laughs) but not too sad. No. No, no keening. Now, if you couldn't afford a proper funeral, you had to go to the poor union. By the mid-1850s, there was about there were about 50,000 deaths a year in London alone. And they were starting to run out of room to bury people. Graveyards were becoming full because most of the time, at that particular time in history, people were buried in churchyards. Mm. The larger, more beautiful, ornate park-like cemeteries did exist, but they were built pretty much for just rich people. And so the poor didn't really have a lot of choice. They relied upon the poor union to provide their loved one with a pauper's grave without a headstone and with uh, little or no ceremony. And this was expensive. And again, a status symbol. Families wanted to make sure that their loved ones would have a, uh, a proper funeral. And so they would often start saving for the funeral long before the relatives became sick or died. It's like a college fund, except for yes. when you kick it rather than 
get educated. Absolutely what it was. The public process required a director. He had to hire black horses for the hearse, elaborate floral <laughs> displays, invitations. They had hand-drawn invitations, crepe, pallbearers, professional mourners, photographs. Jeez Louise. A large feast for the mourners. And so if you were of lower class and you didn't want people to know that and you didn't want your loved one to end up in a pauper's grave, you started mm -hmm. saving for it. The stigma of a pauper's burial was so great that families would go without food and heating in order to put a penny a week for each child, two for the mother, three for the father toward funeral expenses. Jeez, Louise, that's terrible. They also had a thing called burial clubs. Families would join a burial club to afford burying... Oh, like a Christmas club. Right, to afford burying their loved ones. The Anatomy Act of 1832 was passed to provide uh, cadavers to the scientific community in a pretty cruel way. A relative had seven days to arrange for a coffin and a burial, or the body of somebody who died in, let's say, a prison or an asylum or a mm -hmm. workhouse, the body would be donated to the teaching institution. Right. Religious beliefs, of course, fanned the flames of fear of not having a fully intact body ready for the resurrection, and so basically, burial clubs were created to help family members of lower classes pay for services, much the same way that you do modern insurance policies. Sure, everyone kind of chips in. Yeah. And okay. Yeah, that, that sort sense. of thing. So that's kind of shitty, really, when you think about it. It's like you, you, you have a loved one that dies, and let's say they're in an asylum. You've got seven days to get the money together, or they're going to carve him up like an Easter ham. Yeah, that's not a great deal. And with that, I'm just going to say, glad I didn't die in the Victorian uh, period. Yeah, I'm. me too. <laughs> yeah. I do not have time for that. <laughs> I got my information from Ranker, VictorianMonstersAndHistory.com. And um, I have a photo here. Uh, it's actually a, a rate card for professional mourners. And, oh, wow. And maybe we can, we can post that. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. We appreciate your company. It means more to us than you know, especially during these difficult times. <laughs> if somebody says that again, I'm going to punch them in the throat. During these difficult times. We know they're difficult. During these difficult times, we want to help you get a great deal on guacamole. All right, that's it. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Mm. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so... Let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.